All right, so what we're covering this morning is pretty deep, and I'm going to be covering it very fast. If you want to be able to listen to it a little more spread out, you can listen to first service when you get home, because I even packed in like 15 minutes worth of extra like history in first service. So there you go. You get two options on today. You can listen, and then afterwards go back and watch first service. But here we are. We're in John chapter 6. And I want you to remember that Jesus has just fed over 5,000 people with five loaves and two small fish. And the people were seeking Jesus, not because they saw the miracles, but they were actually seeking him because they had something to eat. Jesus fed them lunch. And that's what he said. "You, You don't seek me because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat and were filled. But at that point, some were asking Jesus, as it says there in John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. They wanted some work. They wanted something physical to do. Something to do that would be justifying for them. But you're not justified by anything that you do. The Bible tells us in Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no work that you can do that will be salvific. There's nothing that you can do that will pay for your soul. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for you. That it's in his sacrifice alone that we place our confidence in through faith. And so with that, Jesus says, it's not in the doing. It's in the believing. So, they challenged him. What work will you do so that we can believe in you? And even though he'd been doing miracles all over the countryside... Miracles of, of healing the sick and the blind and the lame. He'd been opening the, like the deaf were hearing. Not only those kind of miracles, but they just had been fed with five loaves and two small fish. Even though all of these miracles, well, they want something else. And so in John 6, 31, our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then continuing on, then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So where is the quenching and the satisfying of the hunger? Where is the quenching and the satisfying of the thirst? It is in simply, he who comes to me, he who believes in me. Again, it's not in the doing, but it's in the believing. Believe this. True bread from heaven. Jesus, the bread of life, believe on Him. Believe on who He is. And in faith, do what He says. Well, where we're at this morning, we pick up in verse 46. Now remember, they were offended already because Jesus said He had come down from heaven. They're like, what do you mean you've come down from heaven? Like, we know your mom. We know Joseph. We watched you grow up. And yet you're saying you came down from heaven? And they were offended at him because of that. He was saying things that was only fitting for God to say. And now they're at this place where they're feeling like they're listening to blasphemy. Who are you to say you came down from heaven? They're offended at that. And now in verse 46 to verse 52, he says, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, 
He who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So again, verse 47, he who believes in me has everlasting life. And then from that, I am the living bread which came down from heaven in verse 51. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So believing and eating are joined. Okay. Verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He has been laying down this point very clearly where they had received a miracle out in the wilderness where they had five loaves and two small fish that just fed everybody. They, they, they chased after him, not because they saw the miracles, but because they ate and were filled. And Jesus said, don't labor for the meat that perishes, but the food that endures to everlasting life, which I will give you. He'd been laying down this point that he himself is the bread from heaven. But then, rather than softening the analogy as they start to get offended and start quarreling among themselves, rather than softening that analogy, he just goes on to make it even more offensive. I mean, remember, he's in the synagogue in Capernaum in verse 59. That's where he's preaching this. He's preaching it to Jewish people. People that separate their milk from their meat because they don't want to digest the two together lest they're you know, guilty of, of cooking a mother in its milk. Like that's like they're the ones that would strain at a gnat because the Bible says don't eat anything with the blood still in it. And then there's a very strict kosher laws about what you can eat and what you're not supposed to eat. And now in this synagogue where they're all about the kosher dietary laws, where they have all of these extreme practices about remaining kosher, now he says, eat my flesh. And they're like, what? This is crazy talk. First you're saying you came down from heaven and now you're saying eat flesh? And then instead of make whoa, 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 wait, let me let me just explain. No, he takes it even further. Verse 53 to 59. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. Verse 58, This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now remember, verse 47, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Then from there, in verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then in verse 57 and 58, as the living Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. The Lord and his body, the Lord and his blood. And he says to them there in the synagogue in Capernaum, eat my body, drink my blood. 
And you can imagine that that sounded extremely creepy to them that day. I mean, if you've never heard that expression before, you'd be like, it sounds creepy today too, guys. In fact, when he said these things, so many people left and they didn't follow him anymore after that day because of how offensive it was. But the disciples were different. In John 6, 68, it says, But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But notice there in verse 46, it brings up an, a super important aspect to this whole topic. And this microphone is starting to get all rumbly. Is, Larry, are you still in here? Okay, Larry's not in here right now, but when he comes in, I'm going to switch microphones so that it doesn't keep rumbling. Uh, okay. So in verse 46, uh, an important aspect to this whole topic that we're looking at. He says in verse 46, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Now, they're already offended that he said he's come down from heaven. They're already considering him a blasphemer and they're trying to figure out how to put him to death because he's saying things that is only fitting for God to say. And now he takes it one step further and he says, now you have to eat my body and drink my blood. But it's all connected with this. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. We read this, this expression at the very beginning of the Gospel of John. There's something that John is bringing across in his Gospel where it says in John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. The declaring of who God is through the Jesus is something that we see so explicitly in the Gospel of John. To Moses, God was, like Moses wanted to see God. The very one who they're saying, Moses gave us bread from heaven. Do the thing that Moses did. And he connects it with them. Hey, there was a time when Moses wanted to see God. And you know what God said to him? You can't see me and live. No man can see me and live. But yet Jesus, he says to them right there that no one has seen God except he who has come from God. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Hebrews 1.3 says, who being in the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in John 14 verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? It's like what John said in John 1.14, that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared Him. So there's something about Jesus that they understood the man, Jesus. They understood when He said um, they, they, they knew Mary. They knew Joseph. They had watched him grow up. They knew that part of him. But now he's saying, I've come down from heaven. And all through the Bible, we see this very unique expression. That Jesus has come from God. We see that Jesus is God. And that Jesus has come to reveal to man who God is. He has declared Him. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. Now here's the unique thing. When you look at the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke, there's this incident where Jesus leads Peter, James, and John on top of a high mountain, Mount Tabor, and there in Mount Tabor, he is transfigured before them. He is shining radiant in his own uncreated divine light, shining in his glory. But the Gospel of John doesn't highlight that incident. The glory that John focuses in on is a totally different glory. It's a glory that the Apostle Paul mentions, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And the glory that the Gospel of John highlights is the King of Heaven, the King of Israel, who has been born to suffer and die on behalf of the undeserving. That in his suffering, that he is glorified. That in his suffering and sacrifice on our behalf, we see the glory of God manifested on the cross. And so when we think about Jesus, like his birth was contrary to the laws of life. His death was contrary to the laws of death. And he didn't have any cornfields or any fisheries and yet he could spread a table and feed 5,000 with one meal. And have fish and bread to spare. He walked, he didn't walk on marble, he didn't walk on beautiful carpet, and yet the Sea of Galilee spread itself out in front of him to support his holy feet. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's what John is highlighting. And that's where they're offended first in this passage because he said he came down from heaven. And now he's saying, I am the bread from heaven and you must eat of my body and drink of my blood. Okay, so there's this aspect of philosophy and Christian theology that's called, ready for a big word? Metaphysics. And when I say metaphysics, I'm not talking in terms of like, you know, sometimes you'll see like the metaphysical store and they'll have like dream catchers and incense and you'll go in and they'll have that ethereal music. And you go in there and man, you get in some mood, you're feeling something. Whoa, it's so like metaphysical, man. Um, I'm not talking metaphysics like that. I'm talking metaphysics like, like Aristotle did so much to um, explain and to unpack. Metaphysics. So you know what physics is, right? Physics is basically the study of the physical world. I mean, I could just say like physics and physical, they go together. But what metaphysics is, is it's what comes after physics, or what's behind physics. It's that unseen, immaterial, unphysical thing that sets the entire physical order on its foundation. There's this metaphysics is things that are separate from matter, beyond the sensible universe, and yet it's ultimate reality. And so you can say that metaphysics is in two different fields. One is ontology, the study of nature and being, and cosmology, the study of, of nature, of the, the nature of the cosmos. And there's certain things that we believe as Christians that are based on metaphysics. Like the fact that God is the supreme source of all being and reality. That it isn't that God just, he doesn't just have being, that God is being. That he doesn't just have existence, that he is existence, that he is pure actuality. 
that this creation that we have is intelligible because God is intelligent. And that we can understand the creation that he made because he made us in his image with the capacity to understand him and his intelligent order. That there is an order and a structure to things. Not that it's just like chaos that has assembled itself upon the void of nothingness. That's why everywhere you look, you find order and you find structure. That's one of the things that I think is beautiful about mathematics, even though I'm not good at mathematics. I know enough to know that math isn't something that's invented because math is already there. Math is discovered. Math works because there's an unseen metaphysical order to all things. And so people can come up with their equations and whether or not they're doing math on physical things or theoretical things, the math continues to work because God has set his creation upon his own foundation. And that's where it finds its bedrock. It works, it exists. There's order to everything. And so with that, there is Christian metaphysics in the Bible. In John 1, 1 through 4. Now, I put in these parentheses to kind of give you some background on what those words can mean. But in the beginning of the cosmos, right? That's part of the, that's part of the study of metaphysics. In the beginning of the cosmos was the word. That, that word, the logos, the mind, the reason, the thought, wisdom, intelligence, the idea, the law or order or purpose or design, like all of those fit within that word logos. The the fullness of the mind of God. So the beginning of the cosmos is the fullness of the mind of God. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was nothing made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The flow of this passage, it sets the framework of Christian philosophy. It truly is mind before matter. It's God before all else, His plan, His design before creation. And therefore, we have ordered everything because He has set it in order. In fact, one of the root words of logic is logos. We get the order of all things That's why, like, the world that we're living in today hates logic. Logic is an assault against the modern mentality because it's completely illogical. But that's another story. That's another study. There's an order to everything. Okay, now with that, it's life from life and it's enlightenment from the divine light. Psalm 36, verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. The only way we even perceive the world around us is because we're perceiving it upon the ontological framework that God has provided. Even the world out there that denies God tries to live according to the rules that He has set up. They reject God, and yet they claim things like morality. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who put, that, who put that order into the universe? Who put that right and wrong there? Where did that come from? Is that just magically up here? Right? Anyway. What does this have to do with Jesus? The bread of life? If you're going to accurately describe the person of Christ, The bread from heaven. The one who, they understood the man. We know Mary. We know Joseph. We saw him grow up. But yet they were offended that he said that he had come down from heaven and that he himself was the bread from heaven. If you're going to understand that and describe the person of Christ, you have to use these metaphysical terms. And so here's a big one. Ready? Big metaphysical term that I I say it from time to time. I think it's important to be said because it's important for us to know what we believe. And that's this word, hypostatic union. I don't just say it to sound smart. I say it because we need to know these things. When I say the hypostatic union, 
there is that word hypostasis or hypostasis. Hupo, which is down under, and then stasis. We have like, you ever heard the word homeostasis? That's like keeping the, the life going, like everything that your body's doing to keep you alive, that stasis that's there. And so like, there's the hypostasis. that's that underneath that you find your essence in. Uh, another word for hypostasis is the word substance. You understand the word stance, and then sub, right? The underneath. So it's that underneath that gives it the foundation. And there is in God that substance. I'm not saying like a thing where you touch. It's, it's, it's that metaphysical that provides where this is the framework by which we know him. That substance, that very being by his own essence. And then, there is in man that substance, that mode of being, as being brought into existence. So there is that which makes God, God. And then there's that which makes man, man. And then when we say the hypostatic union, we're saying that, that these hypostases were united in Christ. Like the Athanasian Creed says, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of that manhood into God. One, altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. Now remember, they came to Jesus after they had received the miracle, they ate the food, and they were filled. And they said to him, what work was, must we do to work the works of God? And he answered them, this is the work of God. Believe on him whom he sent. Who was sent? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Logos. God himself took upon himself humanity. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, the uncreated creator of all things, the one who was with God and was God, he united himself with creation by clothing himself in humanity. God became that which was not God without ceasing to be God. Creator became creation and remained creator. The Chalcedonian definition, I've said this one before, one of my favorite early councils of the church is the Council of Chalcedon. He says, following then the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one and the same Son, the self-same, perfect in Godhead, the self-same, perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the self-same of rational soul and body. Look at this word. Here's a metaphysical word, consubstantial, with the Father according to the Godhead, the self-same consubstantial with us according to the manhood. Like us in all things, a sin apart. Like So that's the one way he's not like us. That we have sin, he is apart from sin. Before the ages, begotten of the Father as to the Godhead, but in these last days, the self-same for us and for our salvation, born of Mary the Virgin, Theotokos, as to the manhood. It goes on, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, 
indivisibly, inseparably, the difference of the natures being no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person and one hypostasis. Not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the self-same Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ, even as from the beginning at the, um, the prophets have taught concerning him. And as the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and as the symbol of the fathers hath handed down to us. What is the work of God? To believe on him whom he sent. Who was sent? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The hypostatic union, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, but not blurred and not confused. United. Who was sent? The bread from heaven. The bread of life. But how do we eat his body and drink his blood? Because that's the part that they're tripping out on. Well, I mean, they're tripping out on the part that he said he comes from heaven too, right? They're definitely tripping on that. And now he just steps it up one more level. You know, there was another time where Jesus said, this is my body. Eat it. This is my blood. Drink it. If it wasn't for that other time, you'd just be like, wow, that was a weird teaching. And then he follows it up in the night in which he was betrayed. Which is interesting because today we're about to celebrate communion and in that, how often do you just rush through communion without even thinking about the mystery of what we're like partaking of, uniting ourselves with? So how, what does it mean? Well, we've already seen it has a, a lot to do with faith, right? We've already seen that he says that he who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. So it has to do with the coming. It has to do with the believing. We already have seen that believing in him is what leads to everlasting life. We've seen that. But then he keeps throwing in this, eat my body and drink my blood. So the next time that he said that was in the upper room and it was when they actually ate something. And it's when they actually drank something. And when they ate that and they drank that, he was present. Presence is the key word to what we experience when we celebrate communion. But what do you mean by presence? And that's the debatable um, feature. Presence is the key word. Like the expression is Christ is present in the Eucharist. But what does that presence mean? That night in the upper room when he was gathered with his disciples, in what way was he present? Because he was present when he said, this is my body. He was present when he said, this is my blood. He was present when they ate it. He was present when they drank it. But I will say this, that when we're talking Christian metaphysics, in metaphysics, there's things that have the substance, the substantial attributes, and then what's called accidental attributes. Or substantial property, which is its essence, and then accidental properties. So like with bread, what is it in its fundamental thing? Well, it's bread. Accidental properties are scent, taste, um, texture, 
ingredients, like all of those things, but like essentially what you're saying is it's bread. Now there is a belief that says that the accidental properties, and like axis, right? Like they're not the essential thing, but they're things that go through the so axis, accidental. It's not like a car slamming in. Well, kind of. One's going one way and then it runs into something else, right? So intersecting. There is a belief that says that here it is, bread, with all of its accidental properties of texture, flavor, um, you know, ingredients, you know, like all of that. There's a belief that says, as soon as he says, this is my body, that the essential attribute of it is removed. And a new essential attribute is it put in its place, and all the ex- accidental properties remain the same. So the removal of bread from bread and the implementation of fit human flesh that smells like bread, tastes like bread, feels like bread, looks like bread, break it down under a microscope, all of that, but the essential underlying has been replaced. And that's what you would call transubstantiation. The substance has been transmuted to a new substance. But Christ was present when he said, this is my body, this is my blood, and they ate it and they drank it, and yet Christ hadn't even been crucified yet. But yet Christ is present. And we cannot deny that. And there's something so mysterious and, and, and like to where people were even getting sick because they weren't recognizing the Lord's body. It's more than just like we're just rushing by to like eat a memento and, you know, like drink a little bit of juice. Like it's, it's so much more than that. So that night they took it and they ate it and they acknowledged Jesus. That he was the one who had the right to replace the entire Jewish significance of Passover because he himself is the one who was offering himself as their Passover lamb. That what they were acknowledging was he himself is the one who came down from heaven and gives his life for the world as a propitiatory sacrifice. But it wasn't that the bread changed substance. In transubstantiation, it's that Jesus himself is consubstantial, not with the bread, but he is consubstantial with us according to the humanity, and he's consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, whoa, here's another thing. Look, we are partakers of flesh and blood. He was not. He created us to have flesh and blood, but He is Creator. And now, as much as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same. So He partook of our flesh and blood. That through death, He might destroy Him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And to release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. He took our body and our blood in order to suffer and die and defeat the devil once and for all. In Hebrews 10, 4 and 5, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Now when did he come into the world? He came into the world as a helpless babe. And that's why like that, this, this, this statement right here, when he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you've prepared me. There's a, a, a preacher named Major Ian Thomas, and he says this. He says, when he came into the world, he said, all of that sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you've prepared for me was all encapsulated in that first belting out of an infant's lungs. 
A body you've prepared me. I've been born to die. I haven't been born to see the best of what you can offer. I have been born to give my all as a sacrifice for your sin. Consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead. And now born of the Virgin Mary. Born to die. Wow. All this in communion? This is the, my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, he says. The blood that institutes and provides the basis of the new covenant. Hebrews 10, 19-22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. What's the holiest? It's not some temple in Jerusalem. That was a shadow, the book of Hebrews says. The true holy place is in heaven. The altar in Jerusalem was a shadow. The true altar is in heaven. And now we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which He has consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. When was His veil torn? When He was sacrificed willingly on our behalf. Through the veil that is His flesh, having a high priest over the house of God. Who is that high priest? The one who now lives according to the power of an endless life. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, Received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ established a better covenant, a better way by once and for all giving himself for us. That we through him might be able to come to God, to relate to God, to fellowship with God, to commune with God. Now, God has made a way for all of us to come. And that way is through Jesus Christ. His body broken for us. His blood shed. So communion. What is communion? First of all, it's a means of grace. And what I mean by it's a means of grace, it is an instrument of God by which spiritual blessing is bestowed upon undeserved sinners. Not only that, it's a means of profound fellowship with one another. Not only by what He did, but in our oneness with one another because of what He did. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and 17, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread, he says. So it's a means of grace. It's a means of profound fellowship with one another because we are united with Him. It's a sacrifice. Now that might trip you out a little bit, but this is a sacrifice. Now there's only two basic types of sacrifice. One is a propitiatory sacrifice. A propitiatory sacrifice is the kind of sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God and earns forgiveness. And I will say there has only ever been one truly propitiatory sacrifice. And that is when Christ offered Himself on our behalf on the cross and declared from the cross, it is finished, paid in full. Now there's the other, which is what we call this. We call this the Eucharistic sacrifice. This is the kind that doesn't merit forgiveness of sin. It doesn't merit reconciliation to God. Remember, they came to Jesus and they said, what work must we work to work the works of God? We want to have something to justify ourselves. And he says, this is the work of God. Believe on Him whom He sent. Believe on what He's done. Believe on the bread from heaven. Believe on the one who gives His life for the world. So then with that, to those who have been reconciled, it's a sacrifice of praise. 
giving of thanks for the, because of the forgiveness of sins. Communion is not a ritual to be observed. It's a blessing to be received. It's the Eucharist. It's the good grace or the giving of thanks. And Christ is present in the Eucharist. It's the physical demonstration of the faith that saves us. What else is it? It's a remembrance. In the Gospel of Luke and in 1 Corinthians, both quote Jesus as instructing us as we come to the Lord's table to do this in remembrance of me. This memorial aspect of communion, though, it's not just bringing something to mind, something that fades as you go on. Like there's like, oh, the Lincoln Memorial. Like, oh, kind of remember, because there's that statue over there. Oh, the Washington Monument. Oh, I can kind of remember. That's not the way that it is. It's more than, <clears throat> more than just a memory. It's more of an understanding of Christ's sacrifice as a present reality that is our intercession before the Father. It's his once and for all sacrifice, the bread from heaven now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high that, that provides our way of entrance. As the Lutheran sacrament of the altar says this, what was is. He who was is present. What was given in self-sacrifice is at every moment of need, newly available. But there's one more aspect to this. Communion is anticipatory. There's anticipation. It says in Matthew 26, 29, But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Luke 22:18 For I say to you I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 1 Corinthians 11:26 For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now that's the big hang up though, right? Presence. Christ is present in the Eucharist. Christ is present in this sacrifice of praise. But in which way is he, is he present? Because we know where the body of Christ is. Christ ascended to the Father and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And at the second coming, when he comes, the Bible says, every eye will see him. And when he comes again, he will establish his kingdom. And we look forward to that day when we drink that cup with him in the kingdom. When we show the Lord's death until he comes. So we know where his body is. But yet there's a communication of his body and his blood to us now. So how does that work? His body's in heaven. His body's coming again with him. And like, he's coming. Like, I'm not going to say like, here comes his... Like, He's coming. He's wholly coming. So what happens now? How is there a communication of His? Because He said, this is my body. This is my blood. Martin Luther was so staunch on this that when he was debating with this guy, Eric Zwingli, Zwingli was just saying, it's just a memento. It's just something to remind you. It's an initiation into Christianity. Martin Luther took a knife and he carved into the table, this is my body. He put a blanket over it like, I'm not changing my mind on this. Because they both understood the body and His presence, but bodily presence is different. Then Calvin came along. And Calvin said that the Holy Spirit is the one who mediates the realities of the body to our present reality here. That bridges those two, the heavenly plane and the earthly plane. And I'm just going to wrap it up with a simple illustration. And then we're going to remember the Lord. I'm sure many of you have written a check before. If you just took a check out of your checkbook, you could even write out what it was for. And you could give it to me, and it means nothing. 
It means nothing because it doesn't have your name on it. But as soon as you sign your name on that check, you have just ascribed to that thing all the value of what is rightfully yours in the bank. You could write it down right to the very last cent of all that you have in the bank for it to be a true check. As soon as you sign your name on it, it is worth exactly. And that's why you don't want to lose it because it's so precious, it's so valuable. And it has value because you were the one that initiated it and you were the one that ascribed the meaning and you're the one that gave it that stamp of identity by putting your name on it. And that night when Jesus was in the upper room, And he says, this is my body. That he wrote the check, if you will. And he put the stamp of his own name on it. And this is equal to that. And as we remember and as we participate, that Christ is present. Is he present bodily? He's present in the same way where he says, where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of you. He's present in the same way where he says, I am he who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He is present. He is here. And we are celebrating what he has done for us. 